is a lot of speculation about what the Justice Department is doing, what it's not doing, what our theories are, what our theories aren't, and there will continue to be that speculation. But that's because a central tenet of the way in which the Justice Department investigates, a central tenet of the rule of law, is that we do not do our investigations in public. This is the most wide-ranging investigation and, and, and the most important investigation that the Justice Department has ever entered into. And we have done so because this, this effort to uh, upend a legitimate election, uh, transferring power from one administration to another, cuts at the fundamental uh, of American democracy. We have to get this right. And for people who are concerned, as I think every American should be, about protecting democracy, we have to do two things. We have to hold accountable every person who is criminally responsible for trying to overturn a legitimate election. And we must do it in a way filled with integrity and professionalism, the way the Justice Department conducts investigations. Both of these are necessary in order to achieve justice and to protect our democracy. Season 2, Episode 24. You got served. Welcome to Capital Insurrection Report, a podcast dedicated to news and analysis on the theme of the January 6, 2021 attack on our nation's capital. I'm Scott Kuhn. The intro to this episode was provided by Attorney General Merrick Garland, who was testifying three weeks ago regarding the investigation into the January 6th attack. Seems relevant now, of course, because as of August 8th, Monday, August 8th, at 9 a.m., Donald Trump got served at Mar-a-Lago. FBI agents raided his home and looked into certain things in his house, including a safe which we'll discuss in the uh, second half of the episode uh, at the very end. Now, I want to be clear, of course, he got served, right? That's the title of the episode. I know I use the word raid. I was speaking colloquially. Yes, this is a judicial process. They didn't just, you know, do a no-knock raid, right? This wasn't, you know, one of those situations. Um, They notified the Secret Service. Everything was done properly. Uh, Trump's lawyers, in fact, show up. So it's you know, they it was it's a judicial process. Uh, it wasn't a horde of Vikings, uh, for example, uh, you know, treating Mar-a-Lago as though it was Linda's farm. Uh, this was a judicial process. Um, but I'm going to probably wind up calling it a raid anyway, just because I I rather like the idea. In any event. Um, this episode is going to be, I'm going to be discussing a few things. Now, at the end of the last episode, you'll recall that I wished the audience a very nice August break, a nice August recess. You know, August is traditionally a time in Washington, D.C., when the national news gets kind of quiet. Um, members of Congress go home, particularly in election year, so the news cycle will be dominated by news regarding the campaign rather than what's happening in D.C., and so I saw this as an opportunity. I thought, great. You know, my episodes lately have been reactive. I've been focusing on, well, really, mainly reporting uh, on the January 6th hearings, 
and thought it would be a good time to, you know, do some research and really take the time to put out an episode that wasn't so reactive and look at some things that I have been interested in that I don't think have gotten the, the attention that they deserve. Well, so much for that, right? That's not where we are in August 2022. Things are happening very, very quickly. So, rather than do a laundry list of the things I'm going to discuss in this episode, uh, we'll just crack on. Now, it's only been uh, a little over a week since the last episode, um, but it was a pretty solid week for prosecutors and courts in D.C., so here are the numbers, as always, sourced from Sedition Track. There have been a total of 850 individuals charged, an increase of 7 since the last tally, so a little bit of a mini milestone there, uh, hitting 850. There have been a total of 387 indictments, no change there. Six deceased, no change there. One dismissal, same. One acquittal, same. 362 convictions, an increase of seven since the last tally. And 225 sentencings, a whopping increase of 51 since the last tally. So that's where your, your big numbers are. Um, they're sentencing them faster than they are holding them in at this point, which in one sense is good news, in another sense not so much since they have over a thousand to go if you count uh, insiders and uh, all the outstanding AFO defendants and uh, the people, you know, who again are on video um, identified or not committing crimes on January 6th. So it's a long road ahead. I knew that when I started the podcast. Um, and let's see how long it takes. Now, I'm going to do a, a defendant profile this episode. And uh, this week, this episode is Tyler Etheridge, 33, of Colorado Springs, Colorado. Uh, although he also has some Florida connections, as we'll see in a moment. Etheridge was assigned the hashtag uh, Pastor Parlor and is of interest for any number of reasons. First, as you might get from this hashtag, he's a youth pastor and he liked to use Parlor. So on January 6th, he recorded a number of messages that he posted online. And here is one taken allegedly, apparently, but it's on video from the Capitol Rotunda. I don't want to say that what we're doing is right. But if the election's being stolen, what is it going to take? <laughs> really? Is it going to take people just talking about it? You know, I'm probably going to admit, I'm probably going to lose my job as a pastor after this, but. What is it going to take? I don't see anybody out here that are just teachers. You know, talk is cheap. I think we're to a point where talk is cheap. And this makes me lose my, my reputation. I don't care. I don't care about my reputation. I care about my nation. I care about it for my daughter and my child. That's what I care about. It's more than 
just talking. It is doing. There comes a point. There comes a point where you have to do. And so, according to Mr. Etheridge, there comes a point where you have to do. It's a bit interesting, of course. He's there, doesn't care about his reputation. But what's he doing on January 6th? He's getting insurrectionist street cred. He's posting videos online uh, to show where he is and what he's doing. At the same time, while other insurrectionists are calling for more people, right? Rather loudly, you heard that voice interrupting Mr. Etheridge, asking for more attackers to physically fight with the cops. Now, there's a joke I've been using, I don't know, for maybe like 20 years. Uh, it goes something like this. If you really want to understand a profession, uh, see, you should check and see what kind of crimes they get arrested for, right? So, you can use Google to do that. So, for example, if you want to understand the nature of the real estate development industry, Google real estate developer arrested, in quotes. And you will see a whole bunch of news stories showing the kinds of things that new, uh, real estate developers typically get arrested for. And it's usually things like tax evasion, financial fraud, and most especially, public corruption. But thanks to our system of zoning laws and the perverse incentives they provide for real estate developers and politicians, real estate development is probably the industry in which more bribes are paid to public officials than any other. Similarly, if you Google police officer arrested uh, or soldier arrested, you'll typically find crimes of violence, uh, oftentimes in involving firearms, right? They have access to firearms, and that is oftentimes what you see uh, regarding the police and the military. College professors, by the way, um, are all over the map. If you look at, you know, Google college professor arrested, um, there's really not one thing that stands out, but it's usually for something rather odd and unusual. It's almost as if uh, their academics are eccentric, and they get arrested just like anybody else, um, but it's usually for something just really kind of weird and eccentric. Another one I like to look for are chefs and cooks, right? You, you Google chef arrested, and uh, for some reason, it's usually for crimes involving alcohol and drugs. I don't know what it says about the restaurant industry, but that's a thing that apparently uh, is part of that community. And so I know the, the payoff is very small for a rather long joke, but it's really, it's not so much a joke. It's kind of a, a social experiment that anyone can do, right? A little bit of uh, social science research. So if you do youth minister arrested, what do you think it comes up? is always a thing that you think. Either abuse or images of abuse. Possession of images of abuse. I don't typically use priests in the example. I, I've always used youth minister. Um, for some reason that they, you know, tend to be, uh, yeah, I mean, whatever the reputation of, of Catholic priests, um, you know, youth ministers don't get the attention in this regard that I think they, they really deserve. It's non-denominational, uh, and it's across uh, lots of different uh, systems of belief. So, Etheridge is apparently the exception that proves the rule, right? Uh, this is the first time, I think, that I've seen a youth pastor 
who's not arrested for sexual offenses. So good for him, right? Uh, he was arrested for assault on the Capitol on January 6th, and he caught six charges to include a felony civil disorder charge and uh, the 1512 obstruction of an official proceeding felony charge. As is often the case, the signs of the handiwork of open source intelligence sleuths are very much evident in the statement of facts. As always, I would like to once again extend my personal thanks, and surely also the thanks of a grateful nation to the uh, open source intelligence community for their work in bringing these defendants to justice. Work, of course, that's still ongoing. When this is all said and done, uh, there ought to be like a medal ceremony, like there was at the end of the first Star Wars movie, or maybe a monument, or at least some kind of acknowledgement by Merrick Garland or President Biden, right? How many times have we heard, well, if you see something, say something, right? Well, you know, the open source intelligence community has really done more than that. And, um, you know, it would be great to see that acknowledged publicly at the highest levels of the federal government and the, the Justice Department. In any event, like in many of these defendants, Etheridge absolutely went out of his way, as I mentioned, to document his alleged crimes that he may have definitely done by taking videos and posting them to Parler, the official self-incrimination repository for January 6th defendants. And, you know, what he did at the Capitol itself wasn't terribly uncommon, although he was rather vigorous and ranged rather widely across the Capitol and the Capitol grounds during the attack. He's right there at the first barricade breach at Peace Circle. So he must have left the rally at the Ellipse with the Proud Boys uh, to be able to arrive there shortly before 1 p.m. And uh, he's there on video, allegedly, but on video, helping to remove fencing, according to the statement of facts. At some point, he makes his way into the, uh, onto the Northwestern Media Scaffolding. So he's climbed up there, and in fact, uh, he's posted video to his Twitter account of himself doing this. Uh, it's, it's still up there. At 2.35 p.m., allegedly, but also on video, Etheridge entered the Capitol through the Upper West Terrace door, and he goes into the rotunda and remains in the rotunda, again, recording part of videos, and according to the charging documents, he passively resists the efforts of officers to remove him from the Capitol. Eventually, he does leave, having spent about 30 minutes inside the Capitol. So he's in a kind of an intermediate stage compared to some other defendants. Um, he's a felony defendant, but he's only got two felonies. But he's definitely not a mere parader, uh, although, of course, he gets all four of those charges that are awarded to parading defendants. But he appears to have not actually assaulted officers, at least not that he's been charged with, and yet he makes physical contact with them, which is odd, right? Uh, that he, he winds up getting this civil disorder account and the obstruction account, um, but apparently they have not given him uh, an AFO. Uh, they apparently decided that whatever... Uh, bar, you know, whether it's closed fist or striking or wrestling, um, you know, whatever bar, he, they decided he didn't cross it. Now, 
he clearly knew what he was doing on January 6th because he left the, the ellipse long before the main body of the mob left the ellipse. And he's one of the so-called normies uh, who are there with the Proud Boys at the very vanguard of the very first attack on the very first barricades protecting the Capitol on January 6th. Okay, so that's the statement of facts. Now, here's the part that to me is rather intriguing. Etheridge is identified very early. The FBI gets an online tip on January 7th, 2021. So he's one of the very first attackers who was identified. And the next step in the investigation is that, again, quote from his charging documents, quote, the FBI conducted social media and law enforcement database checks, which further identified Etheridge as Tyler Earl Etheridge, date of birth 12688. The FBI and Eurofiant learned that Etheridge maintained multiple social media accounts on multiple platforms, including Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok, as well as several email addresses. End quote. So, identified and, you know, the identity is confirmed using social media and database checks. Um, also, when I was working on this, I very rarely actually cut and paste from documents, but I wanted that longer quote in there. And his date of birth was actually redacted in the charging document itself, but there was like a little black box above it. Um, but when I pasted it into my word processor, it came out unredacted. And so now I'm curious, how many of these documents does this little glitch actually apply to? Um, you know, typically, many times, these are annoying PDFs that are simply pictures of a page, and I, I hate those, right? Because you can't really text search them. Um, but, you know, with this one, it's just, they just put some little object, you know, some sort of wing dang or something, covering up uh, the, the, the text and the date of birth. And there's a few other things, like his Facebook ID that's in there. Don't know if that's of any use. Um, but it makes me want to go back and, and look at some of these other documents and see if, if they're actually using this weird uh, redaction technique that apparently doesn't work and is apparently vulnerable to the least sophisticated uh, means of, you know, subterfuge imaginable, you know, uh, control X, control V. Anyway, at any rate, the next step in the investigation is that Etheridge was interviewed in Texas on January 22nd, 2021, with his attorney present. At the interview, the FBI learned, quote, Etheridge stated during the interview that in the fall of 2020, he traveled with his wife and daughter to visit friends in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Etheridge advised that a friend, person one, offered him a paid-for round-trip plane ticket and Airbnb stay to attend former President Donald Trump's rally in Washington, D.C. on January 6, 2021. End quote. So think about that. The fall of 2020. This is before the earliest January 6th permits were even filed. Those were filed in December. So Etheridge was connected to someone in Colorado Springs who knew very early on that, you know, having someone like him, uh, he's 33, but he had been a standout football player, uh, and, you know, having someone like that there to attack the Capitol might be something that they would want. So... 
If you've been listening to the podcast regularly, you know that I've been very interested in the idea that violent men were brought to the Capitol by the Trumpist movement, uh, sometimes with travel and accommodations paid for. And you know that I've, I've mentioned that I've looked through lots and lots of charging documents, particularly for the violent defendants, uh, to find the few where they've actually mentioned things like they were soliciting for donations. Um, and I don't need to, to go into all that here. But again, in, in this instance, this was someone actually really very much recruiting him, saying, here you go, you know, not merely, oh, I think, this, and this is a, quote, a friend, this person one, uh, just saying, I've already made plane for, you know, I've already bought, bought a ticket, I got the Airbnb uh, reservation ready to go, here you go, let's go storm the Capitol. So, again, you know, the charging documents rarely mention travel and accommodations. So, when it appears, I assume that it has some significance. And again, it's also significant that he knew to march to the Capitol, um, probably started, you know, just after Trump started speaking at noon to be there at approximately 12.53, you know, before Trump's speech has even ended. So he is connected to someone who knew very early on that January 6th would prove significant. And he's in the vanguard, you know, not a gang member. You know, he's there as a normie, unless you want to count his church as some kind of gang. Um, you know, although, he, you know, again, not, uh, most of the people who did that were Proud Boys, but there are lots of people, you know, um, who already talked about that, right? You know, people like Samsel, uh, who, you know, did this. Um, you know, he's not a thug, uh, he's a footballer. I, you know, I don't want to draw the line there, you know, but again, he didn't get convicted of AFO. Nonetheless, that's suspicious. That is highly suspicious, right? Someone, you know, decided to bring this guy to the Capitol for the purposes of obstructing the peaceful transfer of power on January 6th. So... All right, so I said there were several things that made him interesting. What's another one? Well, you might ask, what kind of church was Etheridge employed by? And yes, he did lose his job. Um, was it, let's say, a, a mainline Protestant church? Was he employed by Methodists, Presbyterians? Uh, no. So he worked for some outfit called the Christ-Centered Church of Tampa in Dover, Florida. And again, they fired him in January 2021. Now, the website for the Christ-Centered Church of Tampa boasts of their affiliation with Andre Womack, 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 excuse me, founder of the Cheris Bible College in Woodland Park, Colorado. Hmm. Right, so, yeah. Woodland Park, of course, uh, is just uh, 19 miles, 26-minute ride, on U.S. Highway 24 to Colorado Springs. So, yeah. Where did uh, Etheridge attend college? Well, Cheris Bible College in Woodland Park, Colorado. So he uses college connections to get himself this job in Tampa. Fine. But what kind of church is this? What kind of place is Cheris Bible College? Well, You'll remember Season 2, Episode 14, you may recall something called the New Apostolic Reformation, 
uh, from the Clay Clark whiteboard, right? So Womack is a television evangelist uh, who's connected to Lance Wall now, who appears on Clay Clark's whiteboard. And I, I suspect that, like, if you, you know, in fact, Womack may be there. Maybe I, I just missed it uh, in my list. But probably, you know, most of the people uh, who are in this circle, they're up on the whiteboard. So, yeah. So this is an, another NAR guy. This is another a new apostolic reformation guy. So that is is kind of fascinating, right? So that may explain why it took so long. And I've been looking at a lot of these cases, and I've you know I've posted some things about on Twitter, and people are like, no, no, this is just a workload issue, and you know it takes a certain amount of time. And I think a lot of people misinterpret what I'm saying. It's not just that this is taking a lot of time. Um, and it's not just that people are hiding. That's what Christopher Ray said. I'm not buying that either. I think that some of these cases are complex because of people like person one. So they may be looking at people like Etheridge, but really they're interested in person one. And who is person one? You know, that Cheris Bible College connection, I bet it's the connection that got him his job in Tampa, and it's probably the connection that got him his Airbnb and plane ticket to D.C. to attack the Capitol. So, um, again, I would like to see them take down these broader networks, not just Trump, right? Not just the members of the Sedition Caucus, but these broader networks that are working to attack democracy. And, of course, you've got the Clay Clark and his Reawaken America tour. Um, and I want to actually talk a little bit more about that. I was doing some more research on that, of course, um, not on that, but I was going to draw this long, drawn-out uh, kind of historical analogy, uh, looking at the, the fire eaters uh, who were going all across the country in the 1850s in the run-up to the Civil War, right? So I'm, I'm always looking at these... These three different cases that I think are analogous to what's happening today. Um, the first one being the English Civil War. There's lots of parallels there. The second one being the American Civil War and the secessionist movement. In fact, you know, I mean, very direct historical uh, precedent there. In, you know, in some ways, there's an unbroken line of historical continuity uh, between the American Civil War and uh, the insurrection. And, of course, right, the, the guy who is in Donald Trump's nightstand uh, is, is Adolf Hitler. Um, and, you know, so Germany, 1933, the Nazi movement in the 20s, and the Nazi rise to power, Weimar. So, I mean, those are the three cases that, that I keep coming back to. And in this instance, what Clay Clark and the Real Awaken America tour is do, doing is, you know, they're, they're basically doing the same thing that the fire eaters did. Uh, they're going around the country and they're fomenting insurrection. And to my mind, it's directly analogous. And there's all kinds of parallels that you can draw. Uh, this, you know, Manichaean worldview, the no compromise, the way they depict their enemies. There's just a lot of similarities. Uh, but I'm not going to go into that. Just I'll leave it, you know... As, as, a, as a thought, as an idea that I'll put out there. Um, 
Actually, there, there was a uh, there was an article in the Atlantic uh, in nineteen, sorry, twenty sixteen that uh, I probably read right, and so I don't know like if I came up with this idea about the fire eaters because I read that article six years ago. I'm pretty sure I had a subscription at the time and read every episode, every episode, every issue cover to cover, um, or if that's just something from my own studies of civil war and uh, too many weekends as a kid uh, in the basement of a library in Charleston reading uh, the Charleston Mercury on microfiche where all these characters uh, and you know sometimes a whole text of their speeches of the fire readers would be printed. Uh, in, at any rate, um, direct historical analogy and you know I see Clay Clark and the New Apostolic uh, Revival as the, very much the same as the fire eaters in the run-up to the Civil War. All right. So another reason, and the final one, why Etheridge is still interesting to me, is that his Twitter account is still up. So this takes me all the way back to episode two, right, with uh, Shane Bleeden Jenkins, where uh, you've got an insurrectionist whose Twitter account is still up. Although it looks to me as though he may have taken it down, uh, but then rejoined Twitter in June of 2022. I don't know if he was laying safe. And then again, that's interesting, right? Was he talking to the government? You know, did they say, okay, well, we're going to arrest you and charge you later. Um, but, you know, who knows? And the, the content of what he has to say on his Twitter account is kind of interesting. It's uh, at Ty underscore Etheridge 13 on Twitter. On August 7th, he said, quote, not a popular opinion, but I believe the presidency was stripped from Trump the same way Babylon was from Nebuchadnezzar. During 2020, he went from the people's president to acting like a god, assuming he could command people to 15 days to slow the spread. Another tweet, if you study the word sorceries mentioned in Revelation 18.23, you will soon find out how it means pharmakeia which is where we get today's Big Pharma. I pissed a lot of Christians off back in 2020 for telling pastors they have no right to shut down the Lord's church. It matters not if a zombie apocalypse breaks out. No man can tell the church to shut down. Another one. Trump overstepped his authority during that time. I believe God allowed the election to be stolen because of it, and by the looks of it, he hasn't repented. So I would not be surprised if he never becomes president again. Hope I'm wrong. So, you know, that's kind of weird, right? So, I mean, he's got this little de delusional belief system um, where, okay, well, you know, he's got to find a way. At least he's trying to deal with the cognitive dissonance in one way or another, I guess, at some point. At least he's not saying that, that Trump is still president. He's saying that Trump will never be president again because he disobeyed God by shutting down churches for 15 days during COVID? I don't know. Another tweet he, he had, and I, this will be the last one, uh, quote, I spent the last 19 months repenting for various things, including going to the Capitol on J6. I love Trump, but he was deceived by pharma. Maybe in his second term, he should surround himself with discerning pastors like at Howard Brown and at J.D. Shuttlesworth. 
Now, the two people he mentions are Rodney Howard Brown of Tampa and Jonathan Shuttlesworth of Pittsburgh. So, my guess is that maybe the church he was hired at was like a kind of a satellite church of this church in Tampa. I didn't even bother uh, to do the research on that, but, you know, New Apostolic Revival churches in Tampa, probably all connected. Um, and, yeah, so I have no idea who person who won in the Statement of Facts is, uh, but again, you know, it's all around this terrorist Bible college, uh, you know, because that's where this hails from, and that's where he hails from. So that's it with regard to to that. Now, you know, I, I think maybe the reason it took so long for him, and perhaps some of these other felony defendants who were identified very early on, but only are being arrested just now, is because these are people who can get them up the food chain. It's a hypothesis. Maybe I'm wrong, but it makes sense. Um, you know, they have to take the time not only to, to figure out who these people are, I mean, they figured out who, who he was and what he did right away. We don't know what kind of conversations were ongoing. Etheridge seems in his public comments not to be contrite exactly, um, but, you know, not, on the other hand, to being like, you know, Captain Garcia, right? I mean, he's not Alex Jones. He's, you know, he's in a different spot. And maybe that's because he might be a little cooperating-ish. Who knows? In other news related to January 6th defendants, Guy Reffitt, the first January 6th attacker to go to trial, was sentenced to 87 months, or seven years, four months in prison, on August 1st, 2022. You'll remember Reffitt from uh, previous coverage here, and of course the news media. He is the attacker who threatened his children by saying, quote, if you turn, turn me in, you're a traitor, and you know what happens to traitors. Traitors get shot, end quote. Reffitt is a member of some gang called the Texas Freedom Force, apparently affiliated with the Three Percenter Mover movement, and brought a rifle and his semi-automatic pistol with him to D.C., although he appears to have only carried a pistol with him during his actual attack on the Capitol. You'll also probably remember his wife, Nicole, speaking publicly outside of the trial, I believe at the end of the first day, saying, quote, don't take a plea, do not take a plea. They want us to take a plea. The reason that we have all guilty verdicts is that they are making a point out of Guy, and that is to intimidate the other members of the One Sixers, and we will all fight together. End quote. Of course, that's how it works, right? That's the dilemma faced by criminal defendants every day in the United States. Do you take the plea and get guaranteed prison time, or do you take your chances at trial and risk being found guilty on many more charges than you would have been sentenced for had you accepted a plea. And, of course, I mean, it, her claim on that day, probably driven by emotion, I would say, right? I mean, you know, this isn't just January 6th. Uh, federal prosecutors win more than 99% of all cases. And, you know, she's talking about how we have all guilty verdicts because they're making a point off a guy. Well, no. You, you, you have, first off, his was the first guilty verdict, right? Uh, secondly, um, you know, 
to have guilty verdicts because they're guilty. I mean, there's, you know, Guy Reffitt was guilty. And there was very good video evidence. There was very good eyewitness testimony. He didn't have a leg to stand on. And he actually had no business going to trial. And I'm sure his attorney told him he had no business going to trial. So Reffitt's prize for making the wrong calculation was that he got the longest sentence handed out so far. And he beat out Mark Ponder, who was awarded a 63-month sentence on July 26. That's remarkable considering the fact that Ponder has prior felony convictions, as I've mentioned before, including for bank robbery, which uh, factors into your sentence. Uh, according to the guidelines, you get more time if you have prior convictions. So it's pretty clear that other defendants should not, in fact, follow Nicole Reffitt's advice. They should have their lawyers work out the best deal for them that they can obtain and not waste the time of the court in these cases where the prosecution has excellent video evidence, cellular data, eyewitness testimony, documentary evidence, every kind of evidence you can think of. In other news, um, we've been following, of course, the Secret Service scrubbing of data, and it turns out that uh, the DOD phones were scrubbed too, and that uh, DHS, uh, Chad Wolf, uh, Secretary Chad Wolf, and his deputy, Ken Cuccinelli, also had their phones scrubbed. So just an accident, just an ordinary transition from one system to another, except that it appears that it only happened uh, for, you know, high up muckety-mucks uh, who were in some way involved with the January 6th attack. So I expect we're going to hear more on this. It's looking like a systematic obstruction of justice by people who were in uh, policing and or the national security apparatus of the United States at highest levels. And this is going to be, you know, something that, uh, again, constitutes crime. Um, and I don't think they're going to be able to wriggle their way out of this one. All right, now here's another story that got covered, but people didn't actually look at the documents uh, too terribly closely. So I want to take a little bit uh, of a closer look at the documents in this story. That is, say, the story related to the subpoenas uh, from the grand jury investigation into the fake elector scheme, right? So this is yet another one of those schemes that goes, you know, directly to John Eastman, directly to Rudy Giuliani, and perhaps ultimately to Donald Trump himself, and certainly to uh, fake electors in all the affected states. So one of these subpoenas was obtained by the Washington Post, and it went to uh, the fake Trump elector, Kelly Townsend. So unlike a lot of the various legal documents we see from the Justice Department, this was completely unredacted. So, for example, we can see the address listed for Townsend in the subpoena. Uh, 150 North Cactus Road, Apache Junction, Arizona. Now, um, when it was sold, it was sold as a five-acre vacant lot on April 27th, 2021, for $300,000, although today it seems to have a four-bedroom, double-wide trailer on the property. So, apparently, that is where Townsend was served. 
So one thing that really stands out in the subpoena is that it covers all the material beginning on October 1st, 2020, through to the present. Basically everything relating to the certification, to the electors, and a whole long list of persons we'll get to in a moment. So this will include information from the time period immediately preceding the fake elector scheme and extend through now. So it presumably also encompassing any cover-up or potential cover-up of the fake elector scheme. Now, they very specifically want information, quote, relating to the signing or mailing of any document purporting to be a certificate certifying electoral votes in favor of Donald Trump and or Michael R. Pence. So this is significant because the fake certificate from the state of Arizona is a key element of the crime. The fact that they submitted these fraudulent documents to the National Archives in Arizona and other states. And of course you can do a side-by-side. -side. The fake documents look nothing like the real documents at all. Maybe if they had had more time, they would have put the official seal and gotten the right fonts and everything, uh, but just really just shabby and embarrassing. Um, now, I believe similar subpoenas have been served to many other fake electors in targeted states, right? Why would you just send it to the ones in Arizona and not other ones? A key element here uh, is that these electors were instructed to meet in secret. In June, a December 13, 2020 email from a Trump campaign staffer in Georgia, one Robert Centers, I know, yeah, Centers, uh, was released, in which Centers asked fake electors to arrive secretly at the meeting at the state capitol on December 14th, and not to inform security of their actual purpose, but rather tell them that they were there to meet with uh, two different state senators, one Brandon Beach and a Burt Jones. The email also read in part, quote, I must ask for your complete discretion in this process. Your duties are imperative to ensure the end result, a win in Georgia for President Trump, but will be hampered unless we have complete secrecy and discretion. Quote, please, at no point should you mention anything to do with presidential electors, or speak to the media, end quote. So, I, you know, I believe there's a coordinated campaign of secrecy. And again, that is not how these things are usually done. There's usually a bit of pomp and circumstance. And in different states, there are different requirements as to where they can meet, right? They have to meet on December 14th. But, um, you know, Michigan, for example, they're required to meet in the state capitol. According to Republican Chair Laura Cox, uh, she got she was communicated with, with someone quote from the Trump campaign, who told her that fake electors were planning on staying overnight on thirteenth of December, twenty twenty one, to be able to meet secretly at the Capitol on the fourteenth of December. In testimony from the fourth public hearing and the committee held on June twenty first. Cox told the committee that, quote, he said he was working with the president's campaign. He told me that the Michigan Republican electors were planning to meet in the Capitol and hide overnight so they could fulfill the role of casting their vote in 
per law in the Michigan chambers. And I told him in no uncertain terms that he, that was insane and inappropriate. End quote. By the way, if you're too insane for Laura Cox, I don't know if you know anything about Michigan, you're, you're, that's pretty dumb. Anyway, um, so again, concerted effort in Georgia and Michigan uh, to meet in secret. Elsewhere, uh, in Arizona, they, they set up this really sad-looking little, like, Costco folding table uh, out on the sidewalk and, and did it. So they, they didn't try to do it in secret. But, uh, you know, I think they were there were probably directions to do this secretly uh, coming down from people in the campaign. And, again, this investigation, I believe, is pretty far along. And uh, we're going to learn more about that. So the subpoena itself, uh, you know, it probably doesn't really matter. I mean, whether electors in other states like Arizona, where we know they didn't meet in secret, uh, were told to meet in secrecy. Uh, but that, I mean, that's an element of the crime, right? It shows nature that they knew that what they were doing was wrong. Another detail that the committee seemed to think was important was that the Trump campaign had offered to pay the legal bills resulting from the fake elector scheme uh, for these electors. And we now know that many of these fake electors do have legal representation. So, you know, it might be worth asking, who's paying for these attorneys, right? Because uh, to me, that seems... I don't know. I mean, you're allowed to pay for someone's legal expenses, but if you are engaged in a crime, if you're engaged in fraud against the United States, and you say as part, as a predicate of the crime, that, you know, by the way, if, if you get into legal trouble, I'm going to pay your attorney, that seems kind of conspiratorial to me. But, you know, that's just me. I don't know. So, looking directly at the uh, subpoena for Townsend, again, uh, from October 2020 to the present, they wanted all documents and communications relating to the certification, relating to the signing or mailing of any document purporting to be a certificate, relating to any plan or effort to serve as an elector for uh, Trump and Pence. Um, any communication, uh, regardless of subject matter, with any member, employee, or agent of the executive branch or legislative branch of the federal government i.e. members of the Sedition Caucus, uh, you know, Andy Biggs, maybe, um, any member or employee or agent of Donald Trump or any organization advocating in favor of the 2020 re-election of Donald Trump, including Donald Trump for President Incorporated, i.e., yeah, this whole thing was actually run out of the, you know, this is run by Giuliani, basically, right? And there's a long list of people that, you know, are included. Bernie Carrick, Boris Epstein, James Troupas, Jenna Ellis, Joe DiGenova, John Eastman, Joshua Finlay, Justin Clark, Kenneth Cheesebro, Mike Rowland, Rudy Giuliani, Victoria Tunsing, uh, Nancy Cottle, Lorraine Pellegrino, Tyler Boyer, Jake Hoffman, Anthony Kern, James Lemon, Robert Montgomery, Samuel Moorhead, Greg Safton, Kelly Ward, uh, Michael Ward, Thomas Lane, Karen Fan, um, and someone who's redacted, the only redaction in the document, uh, the name is about 10 letters long with no J's, Y's, P's, or G's in it. Um, 
And also from October 21, October 1st, 2020 through to the present, any documents sufficient to show any email accounts, social media accounts, and or telephone numbers that you used. So again, it looks like with regard to the fake collector scheme, at least with regard to these, these subpoenas, they got a pretty good idea of who the participants were in the various states. And they are hitting up these witnesses and they're going to flip them, right? I mean, people aren't going to want to uh, go to prison for defrauding the United States government. The presidency of the United States is a thing of value. And if you submit a fake document, you sign your name to it to ask for a thing of value that you are not entitled to, uh, and you've done it with other people, you've engaged in a conspiracy to defraud the United States government. I'm not an attorney. I'm just a political scientist. But it seems like a conspiracy to defraud the United States government. So even though we've got this development happening in Mar-a-Lago, this looks like the case that is going to be going first with regard to anything moving up the food chain to people such as John Eastman, Rudy Giuliani, and Donald J. Trump. Moving on to more subpoena news, on August 3rd, Trump's White House counsel, Pat Cipollone, uh, received a subpoena from a federal grand jury in D.C., According to Adam Kinzinger in an interview on CNN, this was, quote, probably bad news for Trump, which I think is a delicious use of understatement. One of the problems that we saw in the testimony that Cipollone provided to the committee was that there were certain details that Cipollone was reluctant to provide, as I talked about in the last episode, uh, you know, claiming that they were subject to, quote, executive privilege. Now, of course, these executive privilege claims are nonsense. It's the prerogative of the sitting president to assert executive privilege, and Biden hasn't made this claim with regard to Trump for anything from anyone. And so um, the committee had to satisfy themselves with what Cipollone felt he was able to testify about. Um, but, you know, again, I mean, he's been you know, whatever his failings are in the administration, he, he appeared to be rather cooperative. And so, you know, he was vague on the question of who didn't want the attackers to leave the Capitol. And he claimed that everyone in the White House wanted uh, Trump to issue a statement telling the attackers to leave. But when it came to Trump himself, when he was pressed on it by Liz Cheney, you know, there was that, that moment where she says, he said, she says, well, you know, he says, no, I, I think everyone wanted them to leave. And Cheney says, well, what about the president? And she, he says, no, I, I, you asked about the staff. She said, no, I, I asked about everyone in the White House. And Cipollone said this, quote, oh, I'm sorry. I, I apologize. I thought you said who, who else on the staff? I, I, I can't reveal communications. But obviously, I think, you know, yeah. So, you know, he, he and basically he's like, yes, okay, fine. Trump didn't want them to leave. So once he's under oath and in front of the grand jury, these privileged claims are going to disappear because the judge is going to be able to rule on the question of executive privilege. And the only possible ruling here is that executive privilege 
doesn't apply since Biden hasn't asserted executive privilege. And so the grand jury is going to hear testimony from Donald Trump's top White House lawyer that Trump didn't want him to make a statement telling the mob to go home. Now, in addition to the subpoena for Cipollone, the deputy counsel, Patrick Philbin, has also been served with a subpoena, presumably for the same grand jury. Now, Philbin is, in, in many ways, like, you know, uh, he could, he, I mean, he, he would have been equally qualified for Cipollone's job, let's put it that way. He served in the Bush administration, he was an associate deputy attorney general, and this is where his record kind of gets mixed. Um, to me, to my mind, the thing that's going to stand out, I don't know if you remember John Yu, but along with Yu, Philbin was willing to argue that torture was legal, constitutional, and justified. Now, yeah, I have no doubt that he is going to try to redeem himself. All the testimony shows that he was, quote, on team normal. Um, but this, to my mind, is, is someone who's not redeemable. He supported human rights violations on the most flimsy of legal pretexts arguing that the, the basic protections that are afforded to all human beings didn't apply to Guantanamo detainees because Guantanamo is not part of the home territory of the United States. And so, you know, if you take people to someplace that's not part of the home territory of the United States, you basically create this giant loophole for the express purpose of committing human rights abuses. And, you know, in, in the various legal documents, he talks about Taliban, you know, the various Taliban defendants, but the whole point of it was that we were taking people to Guantanamo who weren't even Taliban. They were just random people picked up off the battlefield and tortured. Now, I really hate that people like you and Philbin uh, use their legal education to turn the U.S. military and intelligence services into an instrument of torture. By the way, Dick Cheney, Deserves a lot of blame here, too. So, you know, I mean, he had a lot of accomplices, right? Philbin had, you know, you and Alberto Gonzalez and, you know, and like I said, yeah, Dick Cheney. I mean, um, he turned the U.S. military into a training ground for torturers. We've had people in the military torturing their own kids and being convicted for it because we told them it was okay. We told them that waterboarding is okay. And I'm sure probably somewhere in some federal prison right now, there are guards who believe that waterboarding is okay. And, you know, it may never come out, but yeah, I mean, that's a thing that we taught members of the military to do in the context of these so-called global war on terror. So as far as Philbin is concerned, nothing that comes out of his filthy mouth has any value whatsoever, as he proved during his representation of Trump during impeachment. He's never faced any consequences. He's never renounced the damage he's done to our democracy. Uh, he should have been disbarred. He should have been charged, if not in the United States, then by the International uh, Criminal Court. Probably a longer rant than I really have time to go into right now, but our failure to prosecute the criminality of the Bush administration led directly to the criminality of the Trump administration in the person of Patrick Philbin. 
who's very good at taking extreme positions and making them sound very reasonable. And during the gap between administrations, his job, his reward for this was a job at Kirkland & Ellis, a multi-billion dollar law firm that's probably best known for getting Epstein, Jeffrey Epstein, the sweetheart deal of all time in the 2006 Florida case and his 2008 super secret non-prosecution agreement they got from Alexander Acosta, who himself is yet another link between the lawless Trump administration and the lawless Bush administration. So that's Patrick Philbin, supposed member of Team Normal and War Criminal. In any event, he and his boss, Pat Savoni, are going to be testifying before grand jury in one of an unknown number of grand jury investigations. That number could be anywhere from three to, you know, I don't know, a dozen. I mean, no one really knows. Um, Marcy Wheeler at Dempty Wheeler has said that there's at least six, and I'm in personally inclined to believe that given that this is such a, a massive and complex investigation, there may be more. So the number would be on the high end. And if you just look at the, the amount of criminality that we know about, this is a very target-rich environment. So having seen the committee hearings at this point, there's so much that they didn't say. So much testimony that they didn't put on the public record. There are things that are known to listeners of this show and the sedition hunting community and other people who follow this closely um, that, you know, we've known for a long, long time. They, in the committee hearings, focused very much on laser, like a laser on Trump. Now, going into this whole thing, I thought they would cast a rather broader net. But again, the focus was very, very tightly tight indeed. So there are all these huge, major players who were barely mentioned at all. So, yeah, it's great. They focus tightly on Trump, but again, they need to take down the network. They need to take down the personnel. There needs to be deterrence. And my hope is, and this is, is something that, uh, a realization that, that I had come to over the past couple of weeks, looking at the gap between uh, identification and uh, just, you know, the sheer number of people. It's like, okay, well, most of the defendants we've seen come, come out, who've been charged lately and arrested, have been more serious defendants, been more felony defendants, and they've been people who've been arrested early on, or rather, sorry, identified early on, and then not arrested until just now. You know, I don't think that's an accident. I don't think this is an artifact of work process. I think that, that is deliberate and intentional. Now, early on, um, maybe they're arresting some of these parading defendants because they have video evidence that they wanted. Well, now, maybe they are arresting the defendants who they identified early on, but yet um, are only arresting now because of other reasons. Because these defendants are connected to other defendants, right? Person one, like in Tyler Etheridge's case, who is person one? Um, so there's that. That is, that is a, an open question in my mind. And as I've said a few times now, um, you know, you could look to the silences, the things where the committee 
is silent. I have come to believe that they are trying to preserve the integrity of the case that the DOJ is developing. And, you know, it would be inappropriate for the DOJ to comment, blah, blah, blah. I've said all along it's a two-track investigation and that they are, at some level, I you know, coordinating. And there, there's a lot of stuff that hasn't come up, right? There's stuff that I've sent to me that hasn't come up, that they don't want to talk about. Um... And I'm sure that that may be true of various people in the sedition hunting community as well. They're focused like laser on Trump, but also they are not including evidence against other people who I think they are going to charge. So they are preserving the cases. They are not putting evidence out there that's going to raise claims of tainting the jury pool. So many sort of slam dunk pieces of evidence simply aren't getting mentioned at all. I believe. And I could be wrong. Maybe their intention is to let all these people go scot-free, in which case it becomes incumbent upon us to just put it out there and shove it in everyone's faces and demand justice. But if you look at all these significant figures, people that we knew early on were huge in the inner circles of Trump, right? barely get a mention in these committee hearings. And these are people who've got to be charged. Ali Alexander, Roger Stone, Mike Flynn, Steve Bannon, Jenny Thomas, Alex Jones, Nick Fuentes, uh, Jack Posobiec, you know, hardly say it, Charlie Kirk, Keith Lee, Robert Patrick Lewis, Cindy Chafian, Judy Fancelli, Ed Martin, Amy Kramer, Kylie Kramer, Doug Mastriano, Scott Pressler, Caroline Wren, Rob Weaver, Clay Clark, Michael Caudry, etc. and so forth. Alright, I feel like I'm getting in the same kind of territory I got into in the Path to Trump episode, episode 14 of this season. But nonetheless, there are dozens and dozens of people who helped make January 6th happen who've either not been mentioned at all or mentioned in ways that are, you know, just very much in passing. They slight their actual culpability. And none of these people have been charged. So forget about Trump for a minute. These are the people who made it happen. And the committee hasn't even touched on the war rooms at all. And uh, about as close as we get is Brandon Strachan, right? The walkaway founder. Um, and he's there on January 6th with Kenny Lee and Keith Lee from MAGA Drag the Interstate. And yet, Strachan gets a charge, but neither of the Lees do. Uh, even though Keith Lee winds up leading the mob inside the Capitol. I don't think this is an accident, right? I know I've mentioned it before, but here we have a major organizer who goes into the Capitol and doesn't catch a charge, doesn't even get a mention in the January 6th committee hearings, despite the fact that this is the group that tried to run Kamala Harris's bus off the road in the 2020 campaign in, Her in Texas, and who came up with the 1776 rebel hashtag that winds up playing a, a huge role in promulgating uh, the January 6th attack on Twitter. So, again, I've said, look to the silences. So, look at these things where they're silent. Now, either the DOJ has decided that they're not going to charge the people were actually the most important participants 
and organizers of January 6th, or else something else is going on. And remember, we've seen this pattern happen in earlier cases. You have a whole bunch of Proud Boys arrested. And then they arrested Enrique Tarrio and charged him with seditious conspiracy. You have a whole bunch of Oath Keepers arrested. And then they arrest Seward Rose and charge him with seditious conspiracy. Right? So the pattern has been they arrested the low-level people, and then they charge the leaders, and they lump them together. Right? That's the pattern in the Oath Keepers case. That's the pattern in the Proud Boys case. And maybe this will be the pattern in some of these other cases as well. Now, some further evidence of this as well, of course, is that Doug Mastriano, a key Pennsylvania figure, someone who was central to the effort to overturn the election in Pennsylvania, has finally is finally going to appear before the January 6th committee. So that is happening on Tuesday, uh, August 9th, uh, in the morning. And so, again, that is highly significant. Now, this is someone who used their campaign funds to bring attackers to the Capitol on January 6th. And, of course, the current Republican nominee uh, for the governorship of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. So he will be appearing at 10 a.m. And again, what happens if um, someone who is, you know, running for office winds up becoming the target of an investigation? Now, there is something called the 90-day rule, right? But it looks like they're ignoring it. Incredibly, I, and, and this is something that I don't think we're giving the DOJ enough credit for. Um, but, you know, maybe the day after elections, Doug Mastriano could win. What if he gets arrested, right? So, you know, that is something that we really have never seen before. You know, do they rerun the election? Uh, does the lieutenant governor candidate wind up uh, becoming the governor? There's really no precedent. I mean, maybe it will be a constitutional crisis in the state of Pennsylvania. But we're finally getting to the core of the conspiracy. And, uh, you know, he was a state senator at the time, but Mastriano is absolutely one of the central figures in the January 6th story, and he's finally going to be appearing before the committee. This is the point man in Pennsylvania for the, the, the fake elector scheme. Um, and he's going to be appearing before the committee. So that is something, you know, which hopefully uh, we'll be able to see in the September hearing of the January 6th committee. And I didn't even talk about Alex Jones yet, right? So as you're probably aware, Alex Jones uh, is facing multiple lawsuits from parents of the six-year-old children who were brutally murdered by Adam Lanza in Sandy Hook, the Sandy Hook Massacre. Uh, Alex Jones, of course, famously said that they were crisis actors and depicted the parents, the grieving parents of these children as somehow um, you know, participating in, in a giant fraud. And they wound up... Um, facing death threats, facing 
people, you know, threatening them, having to move. And so Jones was uh, basically found guilty of defamation and um, in a civil case and awarded, I believe, off the top of my head, 4.9 in actual damages and 49 million uh, in punitive damages in just one of these cases. But, of course, the thing I think almost every listener is going to know that was pretty massive was that the defense attorney, uh, one Raynal, um, gave the, uh, the plaintiff's attorney the contents, the cloned contents, of Jones's phone. Uh, apparently some paralegal had uploaded this to some judicial database, uh, some file-sharing database, and um, he then emailed or sent a message saying, oh, please disregard, but of course they, they didn't disregard it, and they looked at it, and they then said, oh, by the way, um, you know, you can object to this or, or say this privilege, uh, but, you know, we've got this now, and apparently uh, Jones's attorney didn't do this in a timely manner, and as a consequence... Alex Jones's phone, including over two years' worth of data, I've seen sources say two years, uh, other sources say three years, this data from Alex Jones's phone is now, uh, you know, was in the hands of the defense attorney, and the January 6th committee asked the defense, sorry, the defense, the plaintiff's attorney for this data, and it is now in the possession of the January 6th committee. Of course, Jones, rather famously, was the person who was called in to act as a surrogate for Trump in the march from the ellipse to the Capitol when Trump wound up being blocked by the Secret Service uh, with regard to you know trying to lead the assault on the Capitol personally. So we don't know. We don't know what Alex Jones uh, has on his phone or what the committee is going to be able to do with it. But goodness gracious. Now... Raynal, his attorney, is actually a former federal prosecutor. Uh, I think Jones burned through like 10 different attorneys. Um, his strategy was always to perjure himself, and that's what he did on the stand. And the, the plaintiff's attorney was able to show that, oh, gee, no, Jones, you claim you don't use emails. Well, here are emails from your phone, which we have, which your attorney sent to us. So we don't know if Jones is going to be prosecuted for perjury, but he sure seems as though he is guilty of it. Uh, seems so, right? Allegedly. Now, one thing that's kind of interesting is that I don't know how this is going to work in Texas court. Um, there, people are focused on damages. There's a, a, a cap to the damages, but the defense, the plaintiff's attorney uh, feels strongly that they're going to be able to try to lift the cap. Uh, they're going to argue that... Um, that, you know, the, the cap is unfair. So, you know, we don't know how much Jones is actually going to wind up uh, ultimately paying with regard to the damages. But one thing that people have ignored, uh, I think, at their peril, is that um, with regard to perjury, perjury charges can stack. And I know that it works this way at the federal level. I don't know how it applies to different states, how it works in Texas. Um, but you can be charged with perjury for every instance of perjury. So to the extent that Jones's uh, statements were false and proven to be false by the contents of his phone, 
he could be charged with many, many more counts of perjury than, than just one. So that's something to be aware of. So, you know, Alex Jones is in big trouble. And this is someone who, in public, is a horrible human being. He's a horrible human being on a show. He was a horrible human being in court. He's a horrible human being with regard to his conduct uh, with the plaintiff's family, right, the, the families of the victims in court. Uh, he's horrible with regard to his conduct vis-a-vis -vis the judge in court. This is someone who, again, absolutely acts with utter impunity. I don't know if he's on drugs. I don't know what his problem is. But this is how he acts in public. How does he act in private? How does he comport himself in private? And that's a question that, you know, probably they will see uh, in his emails and his texts and the, the various other contents of his phone. I suspect that Jones may not have been particularly careful with regard to the contents of his phone that, again, is now in the hands of January 6th. So this is kind of a sleeper story. Maybe we, they will have time to analyze it. Um, I believe uh, Representative Rigglesman uh, said, give me the contents of Alec Jones's phone. Uh, I don't know. He's, he's retired from the committee. He's not working for the committee anymore. Maybe he'll come back. Maybe he'll come back just to work on this one issue because it seems pretty explosive. Alex Jones was as involved as anyone else. Who knows what kind of text he had well, was he texting Mark Meadows? Was he texting Donald Trump? Was he texting Rudy Giuliani, who seems to be, everyone's focused on Meadows, but Giuliani is a point person for so many uh, different groups and organizations and persons involved in January 6th that, you know, uh, I salivate the prospect of actually learning what's on Alex Jones's phone and the fact that, you know, someone in Washington right now is going through Alex Jones's text messages um, is one that should probably make him tremble with fear. So finally, we get to the topic that initially paused me to just brush this episode out, which of course is the raid, sorry, the uh, service on Mar-a-Lago by the FBI. Um, so last night, Sorry, it's actually the ninth. Um, on the evening of the 7th, Sunday, the 7th of August, the Secret Service detail for Donald Trump was notified by the FBI that they would be serving a subpoena on Mar-a-Lago and that they would be searching the premises. Now, they arrived at 9 a.m. and they uh, searched the premises. And among other things, they broke into the safe in the area of, of Mar-a-Lago, where Trump's offices are. And that is significant, right? So this is a former president of the United States, and it's why I led the show with the, uh, you know, the testimony from three weeks ago from Attorney General Merrick Garland. By the way, there's this theme of a uh, dark Brandon coming out, right? I want dark Merrick, dark Merrick Garland. Make make that a thing, internet. Um, so this is extremely notable, of course, because this is a, f a former president. This means this has to stick. And if you are the target of an FBI search warrant, odds are you're getting 
charged at some point with something. Now, as previously reported on this show, um, there were 15 boxes of material that were taken from the White House and moved to Mar-a-Lago, and the National Archives uh, came and got those in June. So the purported purpose of this raid was to obtain that material, rather to make sure that none of that material was left behind. So it's an interesting question. On what basis, right, would they have, they, they would have to show some good faith uh, basis to a federal judge to say, we don't think they handed over everything. So they've got some basis to think that. Now, a lot of people are speculating a lot of different things. Um, you know, is Mark Meadows uh, cooperating with the committee, right? There's been a lot of speculation with regard to that. So we don't know. We ultimately don't know what this material was. We don't know if this is material that Trump was selling to foreign intelligence services. We don't know if this was, um, you know, compromise, right? It's a, you know, blackmail material, the P-tape, uh, whatever it is that uh, Putin has on Lindsey Graham. Um, you know, we, we don't know any of that. My own personal suspicion is that a lot of this has to do with Trump himself. Like, Trump is a narcissist. Trump is someone who, you know, everything has a Trump angle. And so, you know, this may be material that is in some way just directly incriminating to Trump. Or maybe not. Maybe it's the keys to the city to various uh, documents of national security concern. But we don't know. But the one thing that we do know is that someone was able to give a federal judge testimony that told them to look in the safe, not the basement, right? Because the 15 boxes had been held in the basement. They told them to look in the safe. So, and to do it in a convincing enough basis to get them to offer, you know, to issue a search warrant for the basically the home, the home office of a former president of the United States. So that one, you know, again, you know, going back to what Merrick Garland said, right? Now, I've, I've been very bearish on a lot of this, you know. We have a poor record, as I've said many times, of holding powerful people to account. And, you know, clearly January 6th is bigger than Watergate. But Nixon never got served by the FBI, right? So this is something that is highly significant. Now, one thing that, that has come out that a lot of people are talking about is that, uh, according to the uh, Presidential Records Act, uh, you will be barred from holding office if you are found guilty of uh, treating records inappropriately. Um, the bad news is that I don't think that's going to be a thing, right? So, uh, you know, again, I'm a political scientist, not an attorney, but this is actually an area of constitutional law with which I'm relatively familiar um, if you look at what the Supreme Court is likely to rule, they're likely to say that the Constitution beats out any kind of federal statute uh, to, you know, regarding the treatment of records, right? So, yes, you're not allowed to hold any other office, but that doesn't count for offices that are mentioned in the Constitution, right? So it wouldn't count for Supreme Court, it wouldn't count for members of Congress, and it wouldn't count for the President. So, for example, in 1995, there was this term limit movement, and it, 
it gained success in many states, and they had successfully uh, gotten a term limit amendment to the Arkansas State Constitution, Amendment 73, that um, basically on the state level mandated that you couldn't be on the ballot if you had served a certain number of terms, I think two terms in the Senate, uh, six in the House, uh, you wouldn't be on the ballot for uh, another term in office. That went all the way up to the Supreme Court in 1995. They overturned it on the basis that Article 1 of the Constitution stipulates the requirements for holding office as a member of the House of the Senate. And that state law couldn't do that, right? So on very much exactly the same basis, um, you could overturn that provision of the Presidential Records Act. You could say, well, yes, it might apply to other state offices, but not Congress or the presidency, the Supreme Court, or other things where the requirements for office are stipulated in the Constitution rather than some federal statute. So that's one thing I don't actually have to stipulate on. I have to stipulate, speculate on. That's not speculation. This Supreme Court particularly, and you know, I think maybe even a very different Supreme Court, might rule that that provision wouldn't apply or wouldn't prevent someone from running for the presidency of the United States. Now, with regard to the substance, again, we don't know. And one of the things that I would like to normalize people saying is, we don't know, right? So, we don't know what was in the safe. What we do know is that Christina Bob, uh, the OAN, supposed journalist slash lawyer slash one of Trump's attorneys, um, was one of the attorneys who went to Mar-a-Lago for the service of the subpoena. Um, and she was also, by the way, at the Willard War Room as an unindicted co-conspirator, allegedly, to overthrow the government. She said that, quote, paper was seized. So what does that mean? Well, if what we're arguing about here, the, the bone of contention is the retention of documents, and Trump has 15 boxes of documents, and he's handed over 15 boxes of documents, what would be the basis for any kind of seizure? Did he retain something? If so, what did he retain? Now, you know my theory, right? I've already given it away. It's something that's incriminating himself, right? So he has some kind of, I don't know if it's a national security document, I don't know if it's a classified document, but there was something that was so important that he couldn't simply hand it over uh, to the National Archives in an effort to comply with the Presidential Records Act. So that is very interesting. Um, but again, with regard to the enforcement of the subpoena, you know, this went up to the highest levels, right? So, you know, I know there's a lot of people, I am, I guess, a Merrick Garland fan or a Merrick Garland apologist, however you want to read it. Um, but, you know, I think that this is really making good on the promise to hold the highest levels of the, the food chain accountable. And I don't know that this is just going to be about the documents, right? There are people who are saying, well, this is just about the documents. It's just an era. You know, who knows, right? So there's plain sight. If things are in plain sight, you know, if there's other material related to other crimes, and God knows Donald Trump has other crimes, 
um, that could be an issue. And they are really playing hardball here. And I don't think Merrick Garland has gotten enough credit. Now, with regard to the timing, there's something called the 90-day rule. And again, this is surprising. Um, you know, well, I mean, we're within the window. We wouldn't expect uh, these kind of developments in this kind of case. And yet, the DOJ is plowing ahead. If you had told me that they would be serving subpoenas at Mar-a-Lago uh, in August of 2022, I would have said, what about the election? You know, that, that Garland is, is an institutionalist. He's too conservative. He would never do it. So Garland is demonstrating a commitment to the rule of law and the preservation of electoral democracy in America. And I think we should give him some credit at long last for going ahead and actually getting to the center of the spider's web and looking at Trump and sending the FBI into his home, breaking open his safe and taking the evidence that someone told them was there. So we should remember that, you know, with regard to the committee testimony, mishandling and destruction of documents was a consistent theme that we saw in the testimony before the January 6th committee. So they are playing real hardball. Now, I've mentioned several times in several different episodes, if I were to design this whole thing to maximize political impact in order to uh, have Democrats win the midterm elections and thereby preserve um, electoral democracy in America, I, I would do several things, right? I would have these committees that would produce damning evidence in the summer. We've had that. That's happened. Um, but, you know, it would happen in the midterm election. All, all that, that is, that's kind of happened here, right? Now, this new idea that I've had over the course of the last few weeks is like, oh, holy shit, they're not arresting anybody anymore. They're, they're seriously FO defendants. They're only arresting a few of them. What's going on? Well, it could be that the resources are being deployed elsewhere. Where are they being deployed? Who knows? Are they looking at Rudy Giuliani? Are they looking at Donald Trump? Are they looking at Steve Bannon? Well, who knows who they're looking at, right? Bannon's already been convicted of con contempt of Congress. So the chips are falling. And again, we, you know, there's a lot that we don't know. But if you told me that this would be happening in August before an election, I would say, wow, I would have never expected that from Merrick Garland. And yet it's happening. And you've got a situation where you've got, you know, people like Biggs in Arizona, you know, uh, other Sedition Caucus members, Mastriano, people who are on the ballot. What happens, right, if they wind up, you know, winning or losing the election, and then, you know, it doesn't affect the outcome. Even if they win the election, wow, let's say you're in a state where you've got a Democratic governor, you know, that, it, there, there's all kinds of different ways that this could play out. But they are definitely playing for keeps here. And they are definitely, you know, a lot of people saying, well, you know, they should be blind, blah, blah, institutionalists. Nah, no, nah, that, that's not what's happening right now. And I, I think that they realize what the stakes are. You've got Liz Cheney basically giving up her seat in Congress. Um in order to make sure 
than electoral doc democracy. You know, Adam Kinzinger, same deal, right? So, you know, again, Donald Trump's not on the ballot. 90-day rule doesn't apply to him. And, you know, lots of things could happen before the election. What happens if they wind up arresting Donald Trump sometime before the election? Could happen. That could happen. I mean, that is the territory that we're in. And, you know, even at my most optimistic, uh, the most optimistic scenario where I thought, okay, they're, this is going to be political, they're going to do this in a politically smart way, I did not figure on this. This is actually better from a political standpoint and smarter from a political standpoint than I would have credited at the outset in my most optimistic scenario. So, well, okay. My most optimistic scenario was Donald Trump would have been arrested months ago, right? But again, um, you know, close to that, you, you get subpoenas getting served on Mar-a-Lago in August, well inside 90 days, just before the election. And we don't know. We don't know what's on Steve Bannon. You know, sorry, what's on Alex Jones's phone. We don't know uh, what's going to, you know, what this subpoena service is going to turn up in Mar-a-Lago. So it is a lot that's happening very quickly in what was supposed to be a slow news month. In any event, I'm not sure when I'm going to get the next episode out. I expect that that is going to be driven by events as much as this one was. Still got some things on the back burner that I would, I'm researching and would like to talk about. But until then, thank you so much for your listenership. Uh, please do rate and subscribe. Follow the show on Twitter at Cap and Sir Rep. And I will see you next time.